I've named this episode Repatterning versus Rehabilitation because I want to put repatterning next to rehabilitation and find out, number one, which one is more effective, number two, which one we should value, and number three, where we're going to put our attention now and in the future as far as change, which one inspires real change. This is good not only for caregivers, but for people who are really fighting off Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, any type of neurodegenerative disease, or any person who is fighting any type of mental illness. And the reason why this is, is because when you have stress in your body, it becomes very difficult for your immune system to do its job. So I would love it if you would join me on this journey. And together, we can find hope in the desert. Let's talk for a moment about rehabilitation versus repatterning. And I'd mentioned this before, um, I think in hacking depression, I spoke about rehabilitation and why I don't really believe it works. But let's just talk about the two reasons that people tend to refer to rehabilitation. So the first reason is generally substance abuse. And the second reason is criminal activity. So we, we usually only run into it either with addiction or with some form of socially unacceptable behavior. I really want to point out that there is a difference between criminal behavior. This is coming from a guy who's in law school, right? So there's a difference between criminal behavior and unethical behavior. We tend to think of a person who is a criminal as being someone who is immoral and the two do not always go together. So we tend to not really deal with rehabilitation until a person breaks the law in some sort or until they are caught with a form of addiction. So the problem with rehabilitation is that generally people who are found in these two areas of our experience are usually never habilitated in the first place. And if you just kind of consider what habilitation means, it generally means that people are fitting the conformities of the social norm. And whether you think that that's good or bad is not really so important um, because our social norms don't always fit uh, proper etiquette or good ethics or good morals. I'm going to give you a fantastic example. There was a time where the social norm was to attend hangings or torture sessions. And people would actually pay to attend these things. And it was kind of like going to the movies. Uh, people would put on their best clothes and everybody would be excited about that day. They would gather up and they would go down to whatever the event was. They would uh, pay or trade or whatever to get in and kind of make a day out of somebody getting executed. And this was a thing. 
And that, I don't think anybody would agree with, is ethical. But at that time, it was definitely social, socially acceptable. So when we're talking about habilitation, we're really talking about social norms. And the issue with that is most people who have adapted to either criminal behavior or have some form of addiction usually have some form of trauma. Now, that's not always the case, but I don't want to really get into that argument because that's a little bit of a tangent. Well, I want to deal with the position where it is the case. A person has trauma that they have not dealt with. Now, if we start to talk about um, dealing with trauma, when we deal with rehabilitation in most programs, we usually deal only, we do talk about triggers, but we talk about triggers only from the position of whatever it is that's triggering you to do that negative behavior. So the conversation really starts at that behavior and it never really goes into what the root of that behavior is. And I really want to point out that there is this overbearing pattern in so many things that I have been talking about in this podcast, which is dealing with symptoms and not roots. And I want to I, I want to point this out at this point because it's important for this episode that we establish how much in our society we have become comfortable with dealing with symptoms and not roots. We are a very superficial society. And I'm not saying that you specifically are superficial. Nine times out of ten, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably not very superficial. You're probably a little bit deeper because my level of conversation, I will admit, gets relatively deep at times. But for the most part, many of the people around us, even friends and family, can be superficial. Sometimes that serves a purpose. For example, you don't want to walk down the street and every person that you say, how you doing? You don't want them to go into their story, right? You want that superficial answer of, I'm okay, uh, good, fine, or maybe tough day, but I'm getting past it. Maybe that, but you want it short. You don't have time or attention to pay to everyone's um, depth. All right, but that said, this superficiality starts to work its way into our essence, almost a form of osmosis. And we start to think in dealing with problems from a superficial perspective. It's a wound, put a band-aid on it. And if I put that in terms of addiction or criminal behavior, it's as simple as this. If you are addicted to a substance, the question would be, what action triggers you to want that substance? And so someone may say something like, having money in my pocket or having a difficult day, uh, being angry, uh, being, in a, being in a position of grief, something like that. It'll be some answer to that effect. And we will talk specifically about them dealing with that substance. Now, I wanna point out something that someone told me one time. They said, it's not the substance that you are addicted to. It is the pain that you are addicted to. And a substance is a way for you to deal with the pain. And that's almost offensive because when we start to think about things that we're comfortable with or things that we're addicted to, and uh, it, it's very difficult for someone to, to hear that they're addicted to either pain, grief, or stress. And so I want to change that word addicted or comfortable into just understanding that that is the pattern that you run. 
And I'm kind of introducing now an idea of digging deeper than how you deal with it and starting to go into what you are dealing with. That's the question. What are you really dealing with? So a great example, uh, I have a friend when her boyfriend leaves, she starts to go into a panic. And, uh, if she doesn't hear from him, if he doesn't say he loves her before he, he walks out or they have like some type of goodbye ritual, if he doesn't text every few hours, she, uh, really goes into a bad place for lack of a better term. And it can lead to her picking up a substance. Now, is she dealing with, we'll just say, could we say, ah, oh, that's abandonment because it's so easy to write that off. It's abandonment. And then we stop there. Or should we dig a little deeper and say, where did this abandonment issue start? So the idea here is that we start to dig a little bit deeper into the circumstance. So I, I want to, I want to introduce now the autonomic system, <laughs> which kind of will seem like a tangent, but it's not a tangent at all. It's right on. The autonomic system has two parts. Now the autonomic system is our limbic system. Really? It's the part of our body that is managed beyond our conscious thought. So we don't, we don't, um, every moment we want our heart to be, we don't have to think about it. We don't really think about our breathing all the time. I mean, there are times where we can consciously control our breathing, but for the most part, that's on autopilot. And so there's a lot of parts of us digesting food, things of that nature that kind of run on autopilot. That's the autonomic system. Now the autonomic system really has two separate parts of itself. One is called the sympathetic and the other is called the parasympathetic to just kind of uh, make this simple. We'll call the sympathetic, the stress system. Okay. That's the part that deals with your stress. And we're going to, we're going to go into that a little bit right now. And the other, the parasympathetic, we just call the rest and digest system. Parasympathetic is the rest and digest. Okay. If we talk about now the sympathetic system, we, we say it deals with stress. But there's different types of stress, okay? There's eustress and there's de-stress and then there's some other uh, pockets within each of those. But eustress we'll say is the good stress and de-stress we'll say is the bad stress. And the reason we kind of have to state that is because a lot of people, when they think about stress, they think about the worst possible stress. And all stress is not necessarily bad. Therefore, that sympathetic system exists not only in bad states, but also in good states. But for the most part, when we talk about sympathetic in this vernacular, we're talking about fight or flight. Now that, that part of our limbic brain that tells us to just be still and don't move, we call being frozen. That's parasympathetic. That's when your body does everything it can to be still. And that creates its own internal problems. Let's stick with fight or flight. We get in some form of danger and then our body tells us, it fires off this sympathetic and it tells us move. We don't know what to do. We, we might fight. We might run. We don't know. Move. They just know that their body is telling them to move. And that's your sympathetic system turning on this. At this stage, vagal tone is low because your vagal tone is low. Your body is in a state of reaction. 
it's in an action state okay so here's why this is so important something could happen to a person when they're very young and whatever it is that occurs can create a type of trauma and i'm going to give you a very realistic example of this in a moment i'm just kind of walking through an overview okay it can whatever happens to them when they're young it will tell their body in circumstances like this turn on that sympathetic system fight or flight and that's a trigger okay that's the real trigger we'll say for right now and this person comes into fight or flight but they don't really understand and they sometimes don't even know they're tapping into trauma. And it's very possible and actually happens more often than you might think. When people tap into trauma, they don't actually remember. They don't even know the trauma that they're tapping into. So here's a fantastic example. I have a friend who when she was very young, um, she was playing with her family out by the lake and Everyone was drinking and kind of all of the adults were in their own world. She was just a child. She was meandering around being adventurous as children are. And she ended up going on the boat and falling over into the water. And the people who were uh, supposed to be in charge, the authorities, the ones who were supposed to be responsible, are not even paying attention. And she's under the water drowning. Eventually... Uh, one of her family members comes over and just happens to see her in the water and pulls her out of the water. And instead of the poor baby, are you okay type routine, it's just like a, what were you doing? What were you thinking? Why were you in the water? And she kind of gets scolded. Now, as a child, the only there's only a few ways that we can ask for help, right? I mean, we just, we, we, we make noise and we try to get attention when we're having a problem because we really can't communicate and when you're stuck under the water you really don't know what to do I mean this is a new experience for a child but this created a latent abandonment issue so now when it feels like either someone is going to abandon or someone has uh, shifted their feelings for that person she goes into panic mode when she thinks there's a problem, she goes into panic mode into a way that she can't really deal with her own issues. So this has a latent buildup over time. And it's so important to really understand how this later translates into alcohol and, you know, different types of drugs, sometimes pills, medicine. Some people don't classify that as drugs or it can turn into stress, being addicted to stress or just uh, being codependent, it can turn into different forms of dependency. The way that it does that is we are looking for normality and a person is told to move and they don't really know what to move and they have to find a, a substantial way to calm themselves. So the point is that trauma is later translated into things like depression and anxiety. And it's really an unmanaged stress, which we talked about in Hacking Depression. It is stress that we have not learned how to manage. Part of the management is not understanding how we got there in the first place. A lot of times in rehabilitation, there is this sense that we want to tell a person to be more responsible, build a routine, have a strong ecosystem, 
be have build more willpower, things of that nature. And we've already discussed how willpower is uh, is not really a way that we want to lean. And we've also we all, we have also talked about discipline on uh, how to build self esteem. But dealing specifically with trauma is its own monster, and it also doesn't assume what rehabilitation assumes which is that you were habilitated in the first place. A lot of these people have had this trauma as long as they can remember. To them, this is normal. And asking them to merely show willpower or giving them some tough love or asking them not to flip that trigger is really just asking them to suffer. And that is what I want to point out. We are just asking them to suffer quietly. In other words, just don't disturb anyone else's peace. Repatterning is different. It's understanding where our patterns come from. Where are the strategies and the tactics that we are using to deal with situations? Where do those emanate from? Going back into that pattern and dealing with it. And there are a number of ways to deal with it. One way is something we call timeline regression. And what I want to do is next podcast, I actually want to bring on a specialist and I really absolutely love her style. And uh, her name is Arden Lee and she runs something called the Repatterning Project. And you can feel free to go there and check it out. I've actually downloaded her PDF and, um, you know, I've I've really, I'm into her stuff. So I'm just kind of giving you a little bit of heads up that it's something that, uh, you can try and and look, you don't have to go to her, right? Just understand for some people, traditional therapy does not work. That's what I'm asking you to understand. Traditional therapy does not work. And traditional therapy in many cases can be about responsibility. It can be about just making different decisions, but it doesn't always get to the root of the issue and rerun the pattern. So sometimes we have to, we, sometimes we look in different places. We don't have to. Sometimes we look in different places to get different solutions. And we understand now the difference between rehabilitation and repatterning. If you have tried therapy before and it has not worked, tune into this, tune into the next episode, because I want you to hear, um, really her approach. And if you decide not to go with her, that's okay. Just go with somebody, Right. This is just a convenience for you that we've already spoke to her. We understand this work. She has many testimonies and it's, and it's an area that you can go ahead and jump into. But that's, that's really what I wanted to give you. I wanted to run the difference to you between uh, repatterning and rehabilitation. And I wanted to explain the autonomic system. I wanted to explain the, the, the difference between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic system so we can understand from a limbic neurological level. Um, being that we have talked in the past about neuroception or neuroreception, we've talked about that. And I also wanted to kind of get into the psychological side of it, where we talk about depression, anxiety, and freezing up. Where do depression and anxiety come from? Where does it come from that we make a decision to take a fight or flight, right? And We can also start to understand a lot of bowel problems. For example, people have gastrointestinal or GI issues. 
in their stomach. And we write it off in our society as IBS. Again, a symptom and not a root. We say your, your stomach is swelling, right? Or your, your intestines are inflamed and you're not processing your food properly. Not really rating that back to the fact that there's the trauma in the limbic system. So if you, if you think for a moment of a, a lizard, okay, and it, or a chameleon or something of that nature, okay, and it's in some type of danger, it freezes, it stops right there. It, it may see a predator and it stops right there. And one of the things it may do is clear its bowels out to free up energy for the metabolic, uh, for, the, for its metabolic system. Okay, so that it can move or whatever it needs to do in the time it needs to do it, whatever it's going to do in that moment, it wants to free up as much metabolic energy as possible. And that's really the key. So us being in danger and having issues in the gut are connected, right? So sometimes a person, when they, when they deal with uh, long periods of, of danger, Right. Because you really have to think about what that is. What is it for the for the intestines to clear themselves out? There's a level of inflammation there. There's a level of the stomach working in a certain way where it's tightening and loosening or inflaming to work its bowels out. Right. So if you translate this now to a human being who is who has prolonged times or prolonged areas in their life of this type of response or this type of feeling a feeling of being endangered. And it doesn't always translate as danger. It, it may translate as just stress, you know, stress at work or whatever. And when you become comfortable with it, you just say, oh, that's just, that's life. That's actually how life is supposed to be. We translate it as that. And then we have these um, intestinal issues and we have these um, issues with our blood pressure and things of that nature. And we're not really connecting it with number one, low vagal tone, but also a, a, an overworked sympathetic system. And instead we just attribute it to, uh, we have a problem. We don't know where the problem comes from, but it's something in the stomach. And by giving that thing a label like IBS, it's eat. That's, that's, that's it. That's the root. IBS is your problem. Oh, okay. Not where did it come from or why do we have it? We write it off. That's the point that I'm trying to make. So what I'm saying is you would be surprised at how many issues that we have in the body that we want to give uh, credit to, okay, this is an issue because a lot of people have it and it has a label and we give credit to that just being an issue that we have. I had a friend who for the longest time thought that that person had a, a real stomach issue and didn't know that that person was allergic to gluten. And, and we can get into that conversation on why we have allergies and whether they're really bad or not. But the person was just allergic to gluten. And you would be surprised at how many people I'd known and helped and found out that they didn't really have bowel issues. They were just stressed. And the minute that someone dealt with the trauma and the anxiety, the stress lifted away. And they had far more energy to free up to do other productive things. It's interesting how tension can naturally occupy your mind. If you can't necessarily uh, understand that, I want you to just imagine holding up a weight, okay? And it could be anywhere. You could hold it weight anywhere where it uses a muscle. If it's a very light weight, 
very easy way to hold up. It's going to be easy for you to focus on your, your name, your address when you were a child, your best friend's name when you were a kid, your first dog's name, whatever. You can think about representational things easy. But as we increase that weight, there's a certain tipping point where the weight gets so heavy that you can barely even spell your name because you're so focused on the weight. This is tension. The more tension you have in your body, the less your brain can operate. And it's important to understand that. But once you deal with the tension, you free that up. That's repatterning. In many ways, rehabilitation can be adding more tension because all you're doing is putting more stress and more responsibility on a person who has already proven that they don't deal very well with responsibility. That's not to say we don't have to take responsibility. It's just to say that we have to think about how we are going to react to things differently. One thing I want to point out, when a thought first comes to your head, we call that an urge. When you start to contemplate over the thought, we call that the thought or the period of ponderance. When you actually perform that act, that thought, we call that an action. Now, there's an urge, which you are not responsible for your urges. There's a thought, which we hold you partially responsible for. And there is an action, which you become completely responsible for in our society uh, by the law. That's the credence. That's the lipness that I'm using. I'm telling you how the law really works and also how society works because uh, the law is oftentimes a reflection of society, often. So you have those three stages, urge, thought, action. For some people, the thought does not exist. Whatever they have an urge, they just do. Building the thought process in many ways is building a muscle. The only real way to deal with that, and, and, and when you're building that muscle, you understand now, this is you making conscious decisions. This is you coming out of victim mode, okay? Because it begins when you don't deal with the thought process, you're usually a victim. You're usually the person who's like, and I'm not saying you, a person who doesn't have a thought, period, is generally somebody who says, oh, they made me do it. Oh, I did that because they did that. Oh, I did that because of this. And they're, it's merely their physiological state reacting to whatever the stimuli is. There is no place between what happens to them or their urge and what they do. And so their life becomes blaming everything else, but those people don't get very far. Okay. One of the first things we have to do in order to elevate our state into what we'll call a manifestor state, which I'm not a fan of that state either, but to elevate that state is to start to expand the thought process. Okay. How, how long we ponder or how much we ponder over something before we do it. And Part of that is actually having core values. And there's a difference between a value and a principle. We've talked about that before, real short touch on it. A value is something that you prioritize. A principle is a universal law, okay? It's something that just is, and it's for the good of everything. The more that you value principles, the, the more that you'll be able to use the thought section of that model, urge, thought, action. And I know that that might seem like a little bit of rambling, but where the pattern kicks in is in when an urge touches you, what you do. 
That's where the pattern kicks in. From that point, uh, your core values, your patterns, your strategies, your tactics, those are the things that really take over. And I kind of say that because a lot of it begins with holding yourself accountable. Can you hold yourself accountable to say, I want to change? Because that's the, the only decision you really need to make. Do you want to grow? And it's not always easy. It is not, it is not easy. I'll close out with a short story that illustrates this point and how I came into this understanding. There was a time where I was very stuck in life. I was very, uh, I couldn't sleep very well. I was having a lot of trouble sleeping. And what I had to do, or what I started to do, I didn't have to do this, I don't know who told me, I don't know where I got this from, but I just decided. I would lay down and I would start thinking about my family. I would think about um, siblings in the car, uh, so we're in a car, we're driving. My dad is in the front, he's driving. My mom is in the passenger seat. She's looking back, smiling, talking to me in a very soft, relaxing tone. And I am actually a baby in a car seat. And we are going to some amusement park. And I'm thinking to myself, if I just fall asleep, we'll wake up and be at that amusement park. And I would use that to calm myself. Before I knew it, that memory actually started to take real hold, a real place in my life, and that became a serious memory for me. I could hear the music that was playing. I could smell the scent of my dad's cologne. Um, I could feel myself in the car seat. I could see the colors uh, uh, that, that were going by, the clouds, the sky. And I started to just see this thing so vividly. It was like, man, I had to have been there. And this actually changed the way that my body would react to certain situations. So I, in a way, repatterned on accident. That's it. Thank you for joining. Um, if you haven't liked or subscribed, please do. Please join in. Um, please share this with anybody that can use it. We're trying to spread awareness in a very beautiful way. And I think mental illness is something serious in the way of Alzheimer's, in the way of depression, in the way of caretaking. Uh, these things, you know, not that caretaking is a mental illness, but... <laughs> Caretaking can become a mental illness for many people. It's very, very difficult. And so we're just trying to spread awareness on things like this and, and um, be as helpful as possible. And so uh, that said, I want to thank you for joining. And next time we'll have Arden Lee in for an interview. So we hope you can join us there on Hope in the Desert. <laughs>